just by way of review, and we review this week specifically, we did something that we hadn't done. Um, obviously, we haven't done it in a long time because we haven't started a book in a year. But even when we were starting books, we did something that was not typical for us. We spent the entire week last week in introduction. We took 45 minutes to look at what it is John's got to say, who he's talking to, and why he's saying it. Let me just refresh your memory so we've got a starting point. He started by saying this. He said, I want to give you freedom. Now, there's nobody in, the, in our day and age that doesn't want freedom. We want freedom. We fight for freedom. Uh, many of you have gone to war uh, uh, for, to keep America free and for the freedom we have here, and we thank you for that. Uh, I'm a patriotic citizen, and I served in the National Guard. And I, uh, so, uh, I admire you guys that laid it on the line. Um, and, uh, but for freedom, we want freedom. John said, I want to give you freedom too. It's found in a person. But he said, I want to talk about the four kinds of freedoms that I'm going to give you. Let me remind you. John said, I'm going to give you freedom from despair. We live in a world that is pretty dark. And uh, you can get pretty cynical and pretty, uh, pretty frustrated and pretty hopeless. And look at the problem and say, the problem is so big, not only am I hopeless, I'm really helpless. I mean, I, I could work and work and work and I couldn't make a dent in this problem. And most of us, let's be honest, have a tendency to go through that process in our mind. We'll identify a problem, uh, whatever it might be, and we say, well, I can't solve the problem. So rather, since I can't solve everything, I won't do anything. And we get pretty cynical and we begin to despair. John said, I'm going to give you freedom from despair as we talk about this person. He said, also, I'm going to give you freedom from guilt. Now, there's nobody that's walked around on this earth for any length of time that doesn't know that man is prone to sin. I constantly meet people that say, man is basically good. Man is good. If you can just get past the facade, man is basically good. And, and men, we need to understand that as you deal with people and as you uh, come to know them, you have one addendum to that. In fact, it's a pretty significant change. You cross out the word good and put in bad. Man is essentially bad. Man will essentially sin. Man loves to sin. That's why every man everywhere in any part of this world has sinned. John's going to talk about that. And he said, when there's sin, there's something in your psyche that kicks in and you start to feel guilty about that. And that guilt is, you know, we say this all the time, guilt, guilt can be very, very good. Uh, many of you are here. The, the lady from the hotel came down and she said, boy, the last couple of weeks, uh, the, the studies have been larger. And I said, oh, they really have. And uh, uh, we have uh, typically about a group, uh, oh, I don't know, of about 40, maybe maybe less than that down in... Uh, in uh, Mesa, and there had to be 55 or 60 guys there this week, and Lompaloma, Paloma, we had guys all over. I said, uh, it's a seasonal thing. The seasonal guilts have kicked in. Uh, we have guys that have made these new commitments, and we are part of it. The real test will be, are they going to be there in March? Because there's something in our psyche that kicks in. There's this thing called a, a, a conscience. A friend of mine tells a story, a great story, about the first time he ever heard the word conscience. He was seven years old. And his, he and his brother had taken uh, that day some playing cards, you know, you know, diamonds, hearts, clubs, spades, and they'd taken the cards and they put them on their bicycle. Remember how you used to do that? Put them on your bicycle and then you, you put the, the clothespin on there and then... 
He said, well, we're laying in bed one night, and my brother said to me, and this, my friend was seven, his brother was nine or ten, said, my conscience was really getting to me about what we did. That was mom and dad's best set of cards, and they're bound to know that there's five or six of them missing. And so my conscience really got to me. So he went down. He said, I'm going to go tell mom. So he went down, and, and my friend heard him, kind of could hear his voice, but not what he was saying, knowing that it was confession. And then all he heard was, smack, 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 smack. He said, it was at that time that I realized that I had no idea what a conscience was, but I knew I didn't want one. Uh, and he said, I don't want a conscience. I don't want any part of a conscience. Hmm? Because there's something, <laughs> there's something in us, there's something in us that when we, when we do wrong, or what we perceive to be wrong, something kicks in and it's guilt. And men, that's good. Unless it gets to the point that it just has you so paralyzed you can't function. John said, I'm going to give you freedom from that. He said, I'm going to give you freedom, too, from two other things. Deception. He said, I don't want you to end up down in the, you know, out in the desert with Jim Jones drinking Kool-Aid. We don't want that. He said, I want you to know the truth. And, and there's something, I don't know, there's something in the air right now, but I'll bet in the last week I've had four or five people come up and said, have you studied this religion or have you studied this religion or have you studied this group? And every time I've answered, no, I haven't. I really haven't looked at them. And I said, my policy has been real simple. If I know the truth, I'll know a lie when it comes along. And, and I haven't spent any time at all studying any of these other religions or faiths or cults, whatever term you prefer. They just don't fascinate me. I'm so intrigued by this that what time I have and what commitment I'm going to make to study, it's going to be to this word right here. He said, I want to give you freedom from deception. Here was the last freedom. He said, I want to give you the freedom of, from insecurity. He said, I don't want you to be insecure. I, I don't want you to live a life that's kind of up in the air and, and, and not sure who you are or what you are or where you're going. Not a directional life. He said, I want to, I want to, I want to help you live a life that's focused. So John started and he said, I'm going to give you those, those four freedoms right there. Freedom from deception, freedom from insecurity, freedom from guilt, and freedom from despair. One other word by way of reminder and then we start. John writes about 60 years after the death of Christ. Christianity is not exactly brand new at the time that John writes this letter. And as we've seen some of the other letters written, especially we see them in Paul, as we read through Paul, you hear him say, hang in there. Uh, you hear him uh, use uh, phrases like, we're soldiers for the cause of Christ. We're fighting. Because literally, that was what was happening. There was a frontal attack. It was a direct attack against Christianity early on. Aggressive, hostile, open attack. John said, I want you to understand, there's something that's equally dangerous, maybe more dangerous, because it's subtle and it's hidden. Remember the illustration we used last week about the Ali Liston fight, the second fight. And Jose Torres, who really knows boxing, says the reason that the punch was so devastating that Liston got hit with, the reason that punch was so devastating is because Liston never saw it coming. John said, I want to write a letter to you that are in the church because I want you to watch out for that punch that you're not going to see. Those people that have popped up in the church and they're not teaching truth, they're teaching lies. Man, John writes this book to no specific church, but to you and to me. This guy is someone you're familiar with. He's written a gospel, and this guy is pretty smart. I think he might have been an ancestor of Sylvester Stallone. Because after he wrote 1 John, he wrote 2 John. <laughs> then he wrote 3 John. He knew he had a winner here. He made them all shorter. 
And uh, he just cleaned up on his reputation here on this first book. And then he wrote the book of Revelation. That's who we're dealing with. John the Apostle. Let's read the first four verses and uh, get into the study. First uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. And he said, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Let's assume for a second, and it may not be a wild assumption, that you don't know anything about the Bible. Say you don't know anything. In fact, you were the guys, and you're always my favorites because I do it all the time, you were the guy that went to the index to try to figure out where 1 John was. Let's say you don't know anything about the Bible. I want you to understand, we've talked about this a little bit, this Bible is an inspired and fallible Word of God, but it's something else. It's also a book of literature. It's also a book that will stand up to the test of your intellect. And I can go through, and let me show you how easy sometimes it is to pull things out of here. You could pick this thing up cold, and I'm going to guess most of you did. You haven't read those first four verses at all. You could just look at them, though, and there's a certain couple of words or a certain thought that kind of jumps off the page, especially in the first verse. Especially in observation, okay? Because he's going to get what was from the beginning and he's going to get the word of life and those things. And we may not know what they are, but just applying common sense, there's, there's something we see about John in that first verse. Anybody bold enough to take a guess? Not that there's anything necessarily wrong. I don't know that there's a wrong answer on that, but there's something to me that is really clear just by casual observation. Anybody? Exactly. I mean, look at the words. I have them either yellow, I have them blued. I don't know why I'm blue. But look at these words. He said, I heard this, I saw this, I handled this. I'm not somebody who heard about this word of life, whatever that is. He said, I, I, it's something that I saw and something that I heard and something that I handled. He said, I'm an eyewitness to this. If you were to take John to a court of law, he would be the best type of witness that you could have. Now, the word of life is the person of Jesus Christ. And he said, I heard him, I saw him, and I handled him. I handled them in the sense that for three and a half years we walked around and we lived together, we roomed together, and we spread the word together. But he said, then Christ died and was buried and rose again, and I even handled him. him. I, I, I shared fish with him, with this risen Christ. So the first observation we'd make, even the most casual observation, is that we're dealing with somebody who's speaking in a first-hand basis. That's a casual, just pure, uh, uh, empirical observation. But now he begins to talk about the beginning. And he also talks about the word of life. Keep your finger there in 1 John and move to the left, to the, uh, to, uh, the start of the New Testament, to the Gospels, and go to that fourth Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. John chapter 1. Now this is the same John that's writing. This time he writes in the Gospel. It's important for us men to understand this. 
This becomes a building block for the study. John the Gospel, the first chapter and the first verse. John uses a lot of the same words, again, puts them together in essentially the same idea, but this time from a different perspective. He uses the same word. He said, in the beginning, there's the word. He used it back to start this last book. Now, when John uses the word beginning, he uses it in a different sense. When I say the beginning, I can mean the beginning of creation. I can mean the beginning of time, wherever that is. We just kind of arbitrarily pick a spot and draw a line and say, that marks the beginning of time. In 1 John, when John writes, he says, in the beginning, I heard him and I saw him. We're talking about a different beginning there. He's talking about the beginning of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But in the Gospel, the piece we look at now, he said, in the beginning, the Word, that's Jesus, the Word was, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, and in this time he uses it, he means the beginning. The beginning whenever. The beginning. The problem with defining beginning for God is fairly complex because God doesn't have a beginning. No more than he has an end. He said, Jesus Christ, the Word, was God. He was there in the beginning. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He said, I want you to get one thing out of this. Jesus Christ was God. He was with God. He is God. And that's important to understand, men. In fact, drop down to verse 14, John chapter 1. This is the Gospel still, verse 14. He says it straight away. He said this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a term that we use called incarnation. A holy, righteous God became man. I was in a lecture series the other night, and the guy's topic was the incarnation of Christ. Talking about what we're talking about right now. And he said this, and I wrote it down. I thought it was interesting. He said, if this doesn't blow your mind, it's either too new to you or too familiar to you. He said, if a holy God coming to live on this earth in a body as human, just as human as yours and mine, if that doesn't blow your mind, then it's either too new to you, meaning you, quite, you don't understand it yet, or it's just too familiar to you. You've been around it so long that you've lost the amazement of it all. Seldom uh, does any significant period of time go by that somebody doesn't come up and say, do you really believe Jesus Christ was God come in the flesh? And I've got pretty much the same response. Absolutely, I believe it. And not only do I believe that, I believe this. I believe if you will intellectually, honestly, open your heart and look at it, you'll believe it too. And not only that, if you'll openly and intellectually and honestly look at it, you'll believe it too, but something beyond that, you'll want to give your life to it. There's nothing more significant you can do in this life than to give your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to talk about life? I mean, what's life all about? What's it all about, Alfie? What is life? Uh, life magazine. December 1988, uh, asks some famous and not-so-famous people, what's the purpose of life? Let me read you some of these answers because they're pretty interesting. Uh, writer Tom Robbins writes this, Our mission is to jettison those pointless preoccupations 
and take on again the primordial cargo of inexhaustible ecstasy. He continues and says, or, barring that, to turn out a good juicy cheeseburger and a strong glass of beer. So this guy's way over my head. Uh, uh, Maya Angelou, another writer, says this, Since age two, I've been waltzing up and down with the question of life's meaning. I am obligated to report that the answer changes from week to week. Jose Martinez, a cab driver, writes this, We are here to die, just live and die. The only cure for the world's illness is nuclear war. Wipe out everything and start over. I think I've been in that guy's cab. Uh, been around with that guy. Oliver North said this, uh, We are not here to glorify ourselves, but to glorify he who made all of us and who will eventually judge each one of us on how well we did at the end of the journey we all take but once. Uh, humorist Garrison Keeler uh, writes this, what keeps our faith cheerful is the extreme persistence of gentleness and humor. Gentleness is everywhere in daily life. One never has to look far to see campfires of gentle people. Lacking any other purpose in life, it would be good enough to live for their sake. Never been down into Tempe. Um, Coach Mike Ditka says this. He said, I believe I'm created by God to do the job he's given me while I'm here to serve Him, and then to return to Him. He said, it took me a long time to understand this. Janet Evans, the Olympic swimmer, said this, I believe we go to heaven from here. While we're here, we should set goals and achieve them and be happy with what we are and what we're doing. Willie Nelson. <laughs> Willie Nelson said this, quote, Matthew 5.48 says, be ye perfect, therefore, as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. The purpose of life is to reach perfection. To achieve perfection, man must return again and again through many incarnations to conquer disease, greed, jealousy, anger, hatred, and guilt. Save the best, my favorite, to last. Leonard Nimoy, Mr. Spock, he said this, I find the question, why are we here typically human? Uh, I'd suggest, are we here would be a more logical choice. <laughs> when you ask the, the question, what's life all about? What's the purpose in life? You're going to get a, a variety of answers. Let me suggest to you that we today are talking about the very essence of life. Jesus has said this, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. If you want to talk about life, you cannot talk about it apart from the person of Jesus Christ. It will be meaningless. You'll be pursuing a good, juicy cheeseburger. Because that's all life is apart from Christ. And no matter how good you want to make it, if you're really honest, okay, if you eliminate Christ and you're really honest, the only logical choice is, is what Jose Martinez said. Just to die and get it over with. When we talk about life, men, and you're trying to figure out what the purpose of life is and what the meaning of life is, you have to start with the life itself, the person of Jesus Christ. He was there in the beginning, and He became flesh to dwell among us. Let me say it one more time. 
if that doesn't blow your mind, it's either too new to you or too familiar to you. I mean, if that doesn't just take you and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah, God come in the flesh. What else is in here? Then you're way too familiar with this. You've lost some of that childlikeness. You've lost that ability to be in awe. Imagine if you could, a man somehow taking on the form of and becoming an ant. I mean, that would be kind of an amazing thing. And yet, if we were somehow trying to to equalize those, it would be an infinite difference between you and I becoming an ant and a holy, righteous God becoming a man. And Jesus Christ, God, emptied Himself, Paul says, of all His glory and became a man. Now, not just a man... He didn't become a senator. He didn't become a president. He didn't come as Donald Trump. Uh, He came as a man, a servant man, Paul says in in Philippians chapter 2. A man who is here not to be served, but to serve. And he came for one reason, to die on the cross. See, that's another thing. It's not just that God became man. It's that he became man for the specific reason of dying on the cross. That he loved you and me. He loved the world so much that he came to die. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, you're either too new to it or too familiar with it. And that's John's whole point. He said, I'm writing to a world that doesn't believe that Jesus is God. He said, I'm writing to all these guys on this page. And he said, I'm trying to tell them, you can't talk about life until you talk about the person of Jesus Christ. And he's so intimately involved with us that he was involved in creation. And Paul says, Colossians 1.17, today he holds it all together. Uh, Do you ever do this? I have a compulsive behavior. That's what all my friends tell me, whatever that means. Um, So I'm a compulsive guy. what, What I think it means is I'm not into moderation. I've only done one thing in my life in moderation, and that was work. That's the only thing that I've ever approached with any sense of moderation at all. I either want it all, or I don't want any. I was one of the guys that used to say, they'd come by the desk and say, we're going to go and have a beer on the way home. I'd say, I'm not really interested. Now, if we're going to go and really drink, then I'll go. But uh, having a beer has very little appeal to me. That's the way I did. I'm the kind of guy that would you know, go out and, and decide, okay, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run and get in shape. So then I'd spend three grand on, on looking sharp, feeling sharp, getting new equipment, do it once and say, ah, that's not for me. That's the way that I think, see? I am the kind of guy that would start a project and walk away from it. And even those that I complete hold very little interest to me once they're done. I'm glad God's not that way. Because, see, He could have created all this and just set it in motion and say, okay, the law of thermodynamics will take over and I'm just going to watch now just to see what happens. But that's not what He did. Paul says He holds it all together. Remember Bob Hage when he was here? I think Bob spoke in this group. He was a scientist, uh, is a scientist, worked with uh, McDonnell Douglas, was involved in uh, the Mercury Project, and then one day they came to him and they said, this president's got a crazy idea, we're going to put a guy on the moon. He said, whatever. So he started to work on that project, and they decided they were going to put a man on the moon. And he said, they're working on this, and they've got one thing that is constant. He said, there's one thing we're dealing with, and our whole, all our mathematical equations are based on it being able to get the guy around the earth and, and in, down, and being able to take him to the moon and back. all our time, Everything's based on this one thing, and yet here are all these great scientists. He said, we couldn't define it. It was something called gravity. 
He said, I was telling this guy once uh, that I knew we were uh, playing golf, and he said, we're kind of going through this, and here's what's going on. He said, we're dealing with this thing called gravity, but we don't know what it is. And this guy said, oh, I can tell you what it is. Guy, not a scientist, a salesman. <laughs> he said, I can tell you what gravity is. He said, it's right there in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, Hage had no clue what Colossians was. He said, you might save me some time, and uh, what is that? He said, God holds all things together. He created it and put it in motion and then supervises his creation. See, that's what we're dealing with. And, and, and back to First John, John said, I want you to understand that. I want you to understand that as we study this, as I continue to write to you, he said, I want you to understand that everything we talk about starts with the person of Jesus Christ. He said, I want you to have life. And let me just say that uh, very clearly to you. When we talk about life... We talk about it from a couple of aspects. Uh, look at what he says in the second verse. He said, we proclaim to you eternal life. Now, eternal life has two aspects to it. Quantity. Now, there's a lot of life in eternal life. It goes on forever. But quality. Where do I spend this eternal life? He said, life is found in Jesus Christ. And eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. And let me say, men, if you do not know where you're going to spend eternity... You need to come to the person of Christ. Acknowledge that you're sinful, and that should be easy for you. If it's not, we'll just call your wife, and it'll take us a couple of minutes, and we'll establish that you're sinful. And then once we've acknowledged that, then all you've got to do is say, okay, I'm sinful. Jesus was God, come in the flesh, perfect, to die on the cross to pay the price for my sin. At that point, man, you have eternal life. But I want you to understand that eternal life begins today. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But he said, I came so that you could have the abundant life. It means right now, right here, have a quality of life that surpasses anything you can imagine. John said, we've given our life to the life. Let me ask men of you. And he said, when that happened, something interesting took place. Verse 3. He said, we've uh, uh, seen this, we've proclaimed it. He said, we want you to do this, we want you to join us so we could have fellowship with you and fellowship with the Father. Interesting word, fellowship, because we really don't use it much outside of Christian circles. It's kind of a Christian word. It, it, it's built around the, the principle of getting together under a common purpose. And there are groups all over that are fellowship groups, really. The PTA is a fellowship group. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship group. There's a common bond there. The Board of Realtors uh, have some common agenda that they work from. The Elks have a common agenda, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, the ACLU has a common agenda. Uh, if you're involved in that, um, see me afterwards, and we'll take you over to the corner and explain to you what the agenda is. Uh, there's a common agenda. That's what bonds again. But there's a bond that's tighter than any elk or any secret handshake that you might have or any fraternal organization. It's the, uh, the bond of the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know how many of you had relatives in for Christmas, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, or go and spend time with them. But there's an anticipation. Maybe it's a brother or a sister you haven't seen for a while, or maybe a father or, or a mother or a near relative that you don't know that well. There's an anticipation that says, you know, this is going to be neat. I mean, we're going to establish it, and it'll be just, well, it'll be, you know, we flash back, and we think how, how much we had in common and how sweet it is, and, and they arrive at the airplane, and we can't wait to take them to the botanical gardens and, and uh, show them how we've improved the zoo and uh, uh, take, them, uh, buy the, take them to a son's game and... And uh, go, wow, man, that's uh, whoo, boy, what a day! We killed that day. Um, what do we do now? 
And all of a sudden you discover that this person who shares the same blood, maybe the same mother and the same father that you share with them, you don't have much in common. I mean, you're down to talk about, well, golly, uh, what's your water bill? Boy, our water, our water. Ooh, our water bill is out of sight. And it's reduced to that. Because there's no common bond. Or the common bond is, is, a, is a weak bond. But that same guy who can't relate here or has a struggle here, all of a sudden will walk into his church or walk into this study, get her early in the morning, sit down with a cup of coffee, and within five minutes, he's having a more intimate, in-depth uh, conversation talking more about himself than he, than he would with somebody who he shared a parent with. Isn't that amazing? Why does that happen? John said it's because you have a union. The union that we have with each other is based on our union with Jesus Christ. Now, John's going to tell us something else about this union. I can have union but not be in communion. I can have union and still not be communicating. Susan and I, uh, ten plus years ago, walked down an aisle and we formed a union. The two became one. And we were excited about that. But there have been times that our union uh, wasn't a real good communion. I can't give you the exact details, but a couple of years ago, we uh, had a situation in our house where Susan became so irrational, where she took a stance that, uh, that not only didn't make sense, I mean, it wasn't even, it was, uh, it was beyond being feminine, which I allow for. I mean, it was totally irrational. So I pursued her much like a Melvin Belli would pursue Pan Am. I said, let's, uh, let's uh, talk about this and let's see what it is that your position is. And she began to use those buzzwords that we all listen for, always and never. I said, oh, Susan, I know that's not right because that's, I just know that's not right. I, I can remember a time albeit five years ago, that I did that. Well, but it's a... And, and our communion was very, very weak. Now, we were still in union, but there was no communion. John wants to make a point here. He said, our fellowship with each other is based on our fellowship with God. Look down at verse 5. He said, I want to tell you something here about this God, and then I want to talk to you about this communion. He said, this is the message that we have heard from him and announce to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. He said, I want to talk to you about God, and when I talk to you about God, it's important for you to know something. If you know something about light, you'll know something about God. If you look at light, that'll give you some clue about some qualities of God. When we got here this morning, these doors were closed, and this room was, was dark. He said something else. He said, in this light there's no darkness. And here's what I did to get rid of the darkness. I went over to that panel and threw two switches, and all of a sudden, the light eliminated the darkness. God is light. And where the light exists, it precludes darkness. They're mutually exclusive terms. He said, if you know something about light, you know something about God. We've given you these three things before, but let me just remind you, there's at least three functions that light has. Light serves, first of all, as a revealer. Light allows you to see things as they really are. There used to be an old country western song, all the girls get pretty around closing time. You know, and then sometimes you'd get to the light and say, hmm, I think I left my keys in there, and then you scoot out the back door. The light's a great revealer, and it allows you to see things as they really are. And he said, when you have the light of Jesus Christ, you see the light of the world as it really is. And it also is a great measure. We use light to measure. 
these astronauts uh, measure the distance between planet uh, uh, Earth and the moon with a laser beam. And uh, the construction guys are now using lasers for light. Uh, Jesus is the standard. And he's given us this book. God is light and he's given us his word. Francis Schaeffer said this, If the Bible is not held as an absolute standard, society will set its own standard. You want a light? You want a standard? God's the standard. And light also energizes. That's the third aspect of it. Light gives life. God is light. He gives us a standard. He reveals life as it really is and he energizes us. And in him there's no darkness. Now, John, remember this. Grab a hold of this and we close with this. John said, as he began to write, that he was writing to a group or implied a group named the Gnostics. And we looked last week, we said one of the first things the Gnostics believed was that knowledge was superior to virtue. That it didn't matter how I behaved, it mattered what I thought. And John is going to attack that. Look at verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. The first three words in each verse is exactly the same. If we say, verse 8, if we say, verse 10, if we say. Verse 6, he said, if we say we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Next week, we'll break down all those. But let me give you, as we close, the nine ways you can stay in the darkness. You want to eliminate the light in your life. You want to blow out God. You want to blow out the darkness, the light. Here's nine ways you can stay in the darkness. Here's the first way. Don't ever study this word yourself. Now, never get in, involved in the Bible personally. The best thing you can do if you want to stay in the darkness is go right now, as soon as you're done, and put this in some dark corner of your car and don't ever touch it again until next week. That's a, boy, that is really something you can do. You want to stay dark? You don't want to see light as, uh, life as it really is? Then don't get into His Word. Here's the second thing. Don't go where God's Word's taught. Especially in church. Don't go near a church if you want to stay in the darkness. Let me say this clearly to you, man. We are not a church here. We are not here to replace the local church. That's not what we're all about. And there's seldom, uh, oh, I don't know, four or five weeks go by that somebody doesn't come up and say, boy, I'll tell you what, he said, I got more out of that than I get out of my church. He said, it's like that every week. I get more out of this than I get out of church. And I always say two things to him. One, thank you. Two, find a new church. Because if you want to stay in the darkness, what you want to do is find one of these... Uh, uh, we believe it all type of churches, and this is just sign of guidelines, and we don't need it, and that'll keep you in the darkness. Here's the third thing you can do to stay in the dark. Don't ever talk to God. Don't listen to Him, and then don't talk to Him. Now, that's a word we call prayer. Don't ever pray. Well, that'll keep you in the darkness. Here's the fourth thing. Don't ever tell anybody else about Christ or what He's doing in your life. Let me digress one second there. It amazes me that somebody will say, Jesus Christ is number one in my life. He's Lord of my life. He's got control of my life. It's amazing when I say to that person, what's he doing in your life? And they don't have an answer. If you want to stay in the darkness, let God do something. See, God will do it. And then, don't ever tell anybody about it. Well, that will keep you in the darkness. Here's the fifth thing. Never examine your life. If you don't examine yourself, you're a fool. If you're not taking a hard look at your life, if you don't have yourself under a microscope with you moving the thing up, the, the, the uh, viewer up and down, and you looking at your life, you're a fool. And you'll stay in darkness. You'll be able to get off track and stay off track if you can just live that unexamined life. Here's the sixth thing. Don't obey God. Let God speak clearly to you and then you thwart it. 
Now, let me acknowledge that there are some areas that God is not exactly clear on in His Word. But there are some that are black and white. We got a call um, Monday from a, from a lady, and she said this. And she said, I'm in your Sunday school class. I know you don't know me. I've been there for like six months, and uh, I have a problem. And uh, it's, uh, it involves a man, and, uh, and in fact, it involves two men. And I'd like to come by and see. And I said, wow, um, I need to check my wife's calendar because I can't meet with you unless she's here because men should never meet with women uh, one-on-one ever, and especially when they're going to talk about men things. And, and so she came in and she sat down and she just said, you know, I, and here's why. Let me give you an example why. She said, you know, I, I, I was married and my husband, uh, my husband would not make love to me. And I'm thinking, oh, that, that poor brute, well, you just need to be... See, that's why you always have your wife there when you do that. And he said, then I got rid of him and married another guy, and he wouldn't touch me either. And this is a very attractive gal. She said, now I have a problem. I'm, I am a Christian. There's no doubt in my mind. But I'm sleeping with two different guys. And my question is this, which one is, should I marry? And I said, well, let's, just, let's take a look. Tell me about each guy. Oh, well, he's really cute. And, and he said, the other one is not as cute, but he's a, a little more secure financially. I said, well, go with the secure financially for sure. Uh, I said, well, no, tell me about, well, uh, tell me about the, the first one here, Bob. What's he like? Well, Bob's not a Christian. I said, well, that's easy. Bob's out. Tell me about this other guy. What's he like? Oh, he's not a Christian either. I said, well, look it. This is clear. God said two things to you. One, cut off the physical relationship. That's a given. Two, if it's time to get married, God said, don't marry an unbeliever. If you're a Christian, don't marry an unbeliever. I said, if you want to have problems in your life, pick either one of them and marry them. I'll pretty much guarantee you that. Men... It may not be that specific situation, but if you want to stay in the darkness, you just go where God is very clear and you just say, God, I know that's what you say, but I'm not really interested in that. And then once you sin, here's the seventh thing to stay in the darkness. Don't ever confess it. We look in depth at that next week. Don't ever acknowledge it or agree with it. And number eight, if you want to stay in the darkness, when there's a sin or when there's a problem in your life, blame somebody else. That will keep you in the darkness. Don't ever acknowledge your own responsibility. Always find some scapegoat. Here's the ninth thing that you can do that'll keep you in the darkness. And and let me try, you guys, we gotta we gotta close, but we gotta close with this one because I think this is one of those ones that's a subtle one that needs to be talked about. This is a this is this will really keep you in the darkness. Serve two masters. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You can't serve money and you can't serve God. Boy, you want to stay in the darkness? Try that. That'll keep you really dark. It'll be so dark you'll never see the light. You'll never get a sniff of God. You try pursuing your agenda and His agenda. You try to commingle His interests and your interests. To commingle His funds and your funds. To even try to arbitrarily establish what's His or not His. Just try to mix it together. And you'll be so dark. You do those nine things, men, and by next week I can guarantee you, it'll be so dark and you'll be so lost and so confused and so in the darkness that none of this will make sense to you. But see, there's another alternative. It's to walk in the light. When we get together next week, we're going to look at this. We're going to say, hey, sin's a reality. Now what do I do with it? 
How do I deal with it? Okay, the purpose of life is to find this Jesus Christ. What difference is that going to make to me today, tomorrow, next week? Next week we deal with that whole area of sin. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You that Your Word is true and it's real, that we can believe it because You said it. Thank You that we can indeed find real purpose and meaning in our life through the person of Your Son, Jesus Christ, And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.